Hi, everyone. Please consider leaving us a review where you listen to the podcast and also subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. We would also love for you to consider joining the She Speaks community. It's free to join and you'll get the chance to have first access to surveys, giveaways, product reviews, sampling opportunities, and great content like this podcast. Visit SheSpeaks.com to join and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at SheSpeaksUp. Welcome back to the She Speaks podcast. Hope you're all having a wonderful week so far. So today's guest may be someone who you already recognize and know. She is a television personality, a multi-best-selling author, uh, a finance expert, a journalist, and the creator and host of an award-winning podcast called So Money. She has a new book coming out in the spring called A Healthy State of Panic. We have Farnoosh Tarabi on today with us, and I love this conversation with Farnoosh because we get a chance to talk about her history as a journalist and how that led her to where she is today. We talk about a topic that is increasingly one that she's exploring, which is the topic of fear, how that has affected her in her own life, and how it can be actually used for good and not to ignore it. We talk about her personal story of growing up in an immigrant family in the United States, in uh, Massachusetts, and we talk a bit more about her new book that's coming out, The Healthy State of Panic. She talks about the nine foundational fears. You'll learn more about what those are and what they each can do for us. So I'm really excited about this conversation. I think that Farnoosh has such tremendous insight and this topic of fear that she has really started to explore. Uh, She has such wonderful things to say and things that help you think about fear in a different way. So I'm excited for you to hear this conversation. We're going to jump right into it. Here we go. Farnoosh, welcome to the show. Aliza, it's so good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I'm excited to speak with you because I have seen so much of you on television in all sorts of different places, your incredibly successful podcast. But I want to first start with how you got into the space of money. Like, how did this come about for you? Because, you know, we all grow up, all little girls want to grow up and just dive deep into the world of money and be a financial journalist and all of that. I didn't even know this career path existed when I was young, even in high school, even in college. I think that I t- my my story is I think it's two two things, two really prominent life experiences that led me to this this space. One is I'm a daughter of Middle Eastern immigrants from Iran. <laughs> and if anybody knows uh, an Iranian family, you probably uh, have have been fed well, but you've also um, have picked up on the fact that they love to talk about money and real estate and investing, and they're very entrepreneurial. I mean, particularly the cohort that immigrated to the U.S. during the revolution, like all immigrants who were seeking asylum and political security and and a new life, like you kind of have to start from scratch, right? And so a lot of entrepreneurship came out of um, the Iranian immigrations from the seven late 70s and on. And so growing up in that community, um, there was money was not taboo. Money was something that we valued, that we talked about. 
the good and the bad. There were arguments. There were pleasant conversations. And so I got a sort of a front row seat to the world of money, at least some aspects of it from a, a young age. And so I grew up with this fluency. So that's one thing. Let's let's park that over here. And then there was this other, I guess, um, pull that I had in life, which was to be a journalist. And I really love to storytell and I love communicating. I love performing, all of that. And my parents weren't really going to encourage me to go be like a drama person, an actor. You know, they just were like, you have three fields you can pursue. You know, it's like law, medicine, engineering, maybe entrepreneurship. But this idea of becoming a storyteller journalist wasn't something that they thought was a viable long-term industry to, to be in. And and I get that, but I I went for it. It was a big sort of moment in my life where I felt like I was going against, you know, my family's hopes and dreams for me, but it worked out. But what, what I discovered quickly in pursuing journalism, um, you have to pick a niche. Uh, you really do because you can't just be like, hi, I'm a storyteller and just show up. You know, you they go, okay, what are you, what are you passionate about? What are you interested in? You really have to carve your space in that world, at least in the beginning to just get your, get your wheels turning. And I um, had a finance degree actually in college because I wanted to, as the good Iranian daughter, study something in college at least that would get an ROI, you know, that would like, I'm going to study business. I'm not interested in medicine or law or engineering, but business. Okay. This seems like maybe up my alley. And then on top of that, I didn't see a lot of women in the business school, particularly in finance. And I thought, and I just knew, but just I think because I always grew up different, that I saw the opportunity in that. I saw the opportunity to show up and and be the single, the odd woman out, but at the same time be maybe celebrated for that. The university was really trying to encourage more women participation in certain um, disciplines like finance and engineering. So I felt like I would show up and at least it would be a good thing to be different. And it was. And But I realized I didn't want to study finance and that's when I turned to journalism. But I had this finance background. So I thought maybe I'll focus my journalism on business and money because I have this academic background. I also saw how it was less competitive, honestly, for a journalist to go. And at the time, this was early 2000s, to go into financial journalism. Everybody wanted to be you know, political journalist, an arts and culture journalist, more sexy, fun, colorful things. And I was like, no, I'll cover bonds. I'll cover mutual funds. Um, I saw an opportunity to at least the door was open. So I went in and it was an opportunity to like just quickly start my career in finance and in, in journalism and in personal finance journalism, not knowing that I would want to stick with it forever. I thought, well, it's just an in. But once I was in, I recognized that all that fluency I had as a kid with money combined with my studies, combined with recognizing the opportunity to serve an underserved market of young adults who knew nothing about money, who grew up without maybe the, the background that I did. I had a real, it was a moment, right, to step in and be that person to communicate and educate those people um, through writing and other sorts of media. And and so to answer your question, it was a confluence of things starting from my childhood all up to college and then, you know, just being aware of the fact that sometimes opportunities are not as obvious as they may seem. You know, my 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 classmates wanted to do other sorts of things with their journalism degrees that were maybe more again like exciting or um would take them to more interesting places and I um said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to use what I got. 
and it worked out. And then as I got into it, I recognized thanks to working with other people who were further along and had a great track record and were great role models, how to almost be entrepreneurial within this space. So in journalism school, we learned how to pursue journalism. You got to pick your lane. Are you going to be a writer? Are you going to be on TV? Are you going to have a radio show? Like what's your lane? And I, I don't like lanes, you know, I like to just, I'm a good driver, but I'm, I'm, when it comes to my career, I'm not good at sticking into a lane in terms of at least as a creator, right? How to present. And, and I want to share the stories in all the ways because that's how you ultimately connect with people. So I've had moments in my career where I've worked for companies, but also had my own stuff going on on the side. I have, that's currently my setup, working for CNET Money and Red Ventures, but also they've helped, they've, they've approved my ability to like continue doing workshops and books and pod and all the things. And so I, I think, uh, and we're getting a little off topic, but I think for your audience, this is a huge learning that I had growing up in my career, um, the importance of never being afraid to branch out. And I'm you know, 42 now, and I'm always trying to find a new way to reach an audience. So I, I want to talk about for a moment how you described your upbringing and how that influenced your comfort with talking about money. I think in the US it is a it is a thing that is a tab much more of a taboo subject people don't talk about money and what we we do a ton of research uh with our community of women and one of the things we hear loud and clear from women is that they did not grow up feeling like talking about money was a topic that was comfortable and so you know, when we do surveys and ask people about money, you know, talking about money, women just seem to shy away from it, or they have historically, but there's a growing recognition that they need to be educated. Um, what is the, there's a stat that women outlive men by seven years on average. We have the wage gap that still exists and is depending on your background as a woman, you know, how much further away you are from what a man, what let's say a white man makes in the US. So there are there are those types of things. Plus, there's the investment gap, right? That women tend to not feel as comfortable investing. They're not investing as much. Although we do work with Fidelity and they just um, brought out some studies over the last, I want to say the year that showed that on average, women are actually better investors than men are, but women don't know that. And we don't think that. So my question for you is what is a good way? So let's say a woman feels like they recognize that they have not had the training. They weren't raised in an environment where it's okay to really understand what's going on with money. And in fairness, like our schooling in the in the U.S., there's no class about how do you invest, how do you how do you manage your money. I never had that, and I went through a lot of schooling in this country. So let's say you're a woman who's recognizing you need to get control. You want to think about investing. You want to think about retirement. You want to think about those things. What is a good way for a woman to just get started with that and mm -hmm. enter in in a place that is comfortable? Well, it sounds like she's already to your description, done the really good baseline work of knowing how important this is and mm -hmm. not putting it at the, the bottom of your to-do list. Like this is a priority in your life. 
And on top of that, I want to say it's important for women to recognize that there is nothing wrong with wanting to be wealthy, wanting to be financially independent, and prioritizing your financial independence above many things. You carrying that desire for financial independence into a relationship, into uh, the company that you work for with. Okay. So that's also important. I think that there's something in the air, right? And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think, you know, primarily it's because we haven't really been invited to this conversation of money since recently. I mean, we think about how long the, we've been existing and then just how long women have had, for example, the opportunity to open up a little credit card without a man co-signing. I mean, we're talking 1970s. So if we're talking about trying to unwind from this cultural pressure and and the, the patriarchy and all of that. I mean, that 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 takes diligence. It takes time. Um, but it starts with us recognizing that there is a nothing wrong with a woman being thoughtful and mindful and prioritizing her money, you know, and being loud about it. You know, we shouldn't be hiding about the fact that we really want to save or we want to invest because that gets us nowhere. So in terms of resources, in terms of how to start, I think we are in like sort of the golden age of personal finance content. When I started in the early 2000s, we had magazines, we had a few books. We didn't even have blogs, right? And now, goodness, we have podcasts, we have so many books, we have so many social media accounts. If you're looking for who to follow and you want to find someone who really speaks to you because maybe she looks like you or she had similar a similar financial journey, or she's doing the things that you want to do, there is no shortage of those sort of rich content leaders and, and thought leaders in personal finance. I think that there is also this caveat of making sure you know who is trustworthy because there are so many options and not everybody I think is equally credentialed or equally quote unquote expert in the field. So I would always make sure that this person is coming to you with not just a social media, but maybe they have other real concrete offerings like a book, a podcast, a well up to date blog. You know that they're that they're. This is not just a way, a means to an end to sell a product to you, but that this is really they're in it for the for the community, for the for the connection, for the literacy first and foremost. Yeah. Yeah. I love that advice. And, you know, uh, one of the things that we've heard from women when we talk about this topic and we ask them about the topic of money is uh, because as women, we are frequently putting others in front of ourselves. We have women say, well, I can either save for retirement or I can pay for my kids to go to college and the things that they're looking for. And the advice that we have heard on this topic, and I would love if you could just share your perspective on this. But one thing I heard that stuck with me is you can't borrow for retirement, but you can borrow for college. And just thinking about, you know, that perspective. But can you talk a little bit about your understanding of that mindset and why women need to think a little bit more deeply about their own needs in this? Because from my perspective, I don't want my kids taking care of me when I'm in retirement. So can you, can you share, you're, you're way more educated on this than I am. That's my layperson's perspective. But can you talk a little bit about that? Because I do think that's a hindrance for a lot of women who know that they need to save for retirement. But they have this competing, very strong competing priority, which is their children. Right. Well, so a majority of women are going to arrive in their later lives, in their later years, 
having to be financially independent. They're not mm-hmm. going to have a partner necessarily because like you mentioned earlier, we live longer. So whether it's because you are widowed, you are divorced, you didn't get married, whatever the reason, you know, the buck is going to stop with you. And I think that the irony of hearing about how a mom or I hear from dads too, well, I'm going to mortgage the house. I'm going to refinance the house. I'm going to take out all my savings to send my kid to college, or I'm going to save for my, in my 529 plan before I put money in the 401k. I think the irony there is that you are setting up your kid for maybe short-term success, but long-term failure, because what's going to happen when you arrive in retirement with not enough? Ever heard of the sandwich generation? My contemporaries right now in the Gen X cohort who are taking care, and even the millennials who are in their early 40s, who are taking care of aging parents and their kids because their aging parents maybe did pour all of their savings into their comeuppance. Um, So you don't want to repeat this cycle. And I get we all want to, we encourage generational wealth and we want to make sure that we're setting up our kids for success, but not at the cost of your financial failure. That's not, that, that math doesn't math. And I have a lot of empathy around this because I, I can, I'm a mom of two and I know that it's, of course, we would die for our children. Why wouldn't we save more for our children, right? It doesn't, it's not, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying forget your kids. I'm saying that there is a penalty when you don't save for yourself and only save for your kids. It's going to harm not only you, but potentially your kids in the future because then you are going to need their help. The thing about retirement is true that you you really don't have like, you don't get a scholarship for retirement. There's no FAFSA to fill out to see how much your needs are going to be in retirement and the government gives it to you. You've got basically a little bit of social security. You've got hopefully that 401k you've been funding through work or your own individual retirement account, maybe some other assets, but that's it. So you really need to prioritize yourself as you are prioritizing your children. I want to I want to kind of now connect this to the new book that you have the healthy state of panic. Yeah. And I love what you're covering here. It's I know it's a little bit sort of part memoir. It's a little bit different than your past books, right? So it's part memoir, but also you focus on and it's in the title panic, this idea that fear can be a superpower. And this is a topic that we have covered a lot. It is a topic that over the last couple of years, particularly during the pandemic, people have had such a heightened experience and emotional experience of fear. But there is fear, as you talk about, that you actually can put to good use. Can you talk about how fear can be a superpower and a little bit more about this new book? Hope for this book is that it teaches everybody, I think particularly women, how to have a healthier relationship with fear. Listen. We're all scared all the time. And so this idea of just ignoring your fears and being fearless, I don't know. It hasn't worked for me. (laughs) It's not so simple. You're not alone, Farnoosh. A lot of people just does not, that doesn't work for them. And I'm I'm a firm believer that you need to flex your strengths. So if this is something that we're all good and accustomed to and good at, like, let's just, let's just go with what we're good at. And it starts with my own story of growing up very frightened, like, deep end frightened. As a young girl growing up again, the daughter of immigrants who came to this country wanting for a better life, but also they were scared because 
you know, like I think anyone when they're in a new world, a new place, they don't speak the language, you know, like everybody else. We were I was raised in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is, as the New York Times calls, nobody's first choice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I mean, I have many good memories of Worcester, but also some frightening ones. And mm. It's because it was the 80s. I remember the 80s when it was like the five o'clock news was like, you know, what you're eating for dinner tonight might kill you. Join us at seven. We'll tell you the rest. And <laughs> kids being kidnapped and being, it was on the back of milk cartons. I went through the D.A.R.E. program. Don't talk to strangers. I was scared all of the time for my life. And my mother and father, again, again, because like a lot of sort of, more conservative, traditional immigrants, like not understanding the Western culture that included things like sleepovers and ice skating and eating sugary cereal. They were like, hell to the no. Like you're staying home, lights off, curtains drawn. Like we're, we're keeping you safe because we don't know about this world. The thing is, you know, the irony is being like the immigrant story is such a, is such a fearless story in some ways. They came here defying all these odds and they took great risks. But as soon as their flight landed at Logan Airport, they were like, no more chances. You know, like we don't want to, we don't want to flirt with danger. Mm. Um, we, we've had enough of that. We're ready for a really stable life. So I grew, this is sort of the world that I grew up in, which I don't think was singular to me. Uh, I think like a lot of us, whether you grew up as an immigrant daughter or just grew up in the eighties <laughs> in, um, a city. So, so it starts with that. And, and the arc is like, I grew up and everything kind of worked out and it's not because I abandoned my fears to the contrary. I think it's because I grew up learning how to almost deal with my fears. Like they kept showing up and I was like, you again, okay, let's have a talk. And that's what the book is really all about. It's about how to have a real conversation with your fears to respect the mental health uh, that is yours as opposed to ignoring it. And I think, you know, like you've had on Dr. Ellen Vora on your show, she's a friend and someone I've also interviewed for this book because she comes to this in agreement, but with so much science and data to back it up. And I'm more of the person who, who's bringing a lot of the storytelling to pair with that, to say, this is real, everybody. We need to wake up to this. Um, I remember interviewing Caroline Dooner, who's the author of, uh, a number of books, she basically says the same thing that I am, which is that fear, to say that you're fearless is like you're a psychopath because, I mean, really, like, what are you expecting of us to just go through life ignoring our impulse to try to protect ourselves? Because that's what really fear is. It's this natural stimulant that is streaming through our veins. It shows up. It has shown up for centuries for a reason to protect us. And yeah, there's good fear and there's panic. And then, so it's important to decipher, like we're not talking about phobias here, like a fear of spiders. I'm not focused on that. The book focuses on nine foundational fears that we all have. Fear of loneliness, fear of rejection, fear of missing out, which is a very 21st century, later first century, 21st century thing, thanks to social media. The fear of failure, the fear of uncertainty, the fear of money, course. Couldn't do a book about this without talking about the fear of money. The fear of endings, Aliza, like things like a relationship ending, a job ending, a loved one passing, your own life ending. And then the final chapter is the fear of losing your freedom because what could be scarier? My theory is that when we can sort of have a 
an emotional maturity with the, these other eight fears that we can arrive at really tackling the fear of losing our freedom with power. Whether you're a woman in Iran right now who is really, really like going to the extremes to protect her freedoms, she is scared. But look at how that fear is driving her to create a revolution. But in our daily lives, how can we how can we win those battles? And you know, not everybody has those extreme fears of losing like literally their freedom. But I think in, in the United States, it's a very precarious time for women and freedom. But even in your like personal everyday life, whether it's someone or something stepping in your way of achieving what is rightfully yours, whether it's the ability to pursue life on your terms, the ability to pursue your sexuality, your choice to just be you, you know, like we can't just take that for granted. That is a freedom that is ours, but we are not allowed to always practice that. So how do you do that? And how does fear help you live life as yourself and to feel good about it and safe? Yes. I think you cover so many of the things that we all do fear with that list that you mentioned and working your way through that, but also recognizing that it's okay to fear. It's also, it's our instinct, right? It's our instinct to keep ourselves safe. Fear is, is an instinct. It is. And I'm sorry, but the world's a scary place. Interesting. I had an interesting like revelation. The only, I feel like most of the people who have ever told me or quotes that I've read that have said things like fear nothing but fear itself, you know, happiness is on the other side of fear. Who are these people? White men. I'm sorry, people with privilege. It is such a privilege to not be able to have fear, to just walk through life and do whatever you want, you know, but there are consequences to that, real consequences. And I'm sorry, but I don't want those consequences. And maybe that makes me a scaredy cat. Well, so be it. In Farsi, the word there's a word that I was I was given as a nickname because I was the scared kid all the time. And it was Tarsu. I was a little Tarsu. Tarsu means scaredy cat. And I want to bring that word into the public domain and just mm-hmm. say like, be a proud Tarsu. Tarsu is nothing to be ashamed of. And as I, when I was growing up, people would always joke and say, oh, she's you know, they thought that I was, I thought I was weak for having fear. Really. I mean, it makes me so sad to think how I was underestimated, undermined, laughed at. And, um, I regret nothing. I regret none of those crazy impulsive things that I did as a kid because I was scared because like I ran out of my class in kindergarten when an unknown teacher claimed to be the substitute. And I was like, what? No one told us there was going to be a man showing up to teach us. Where's my lovely teacher who like, and I was so scared because my mom said, don't talk to strangers. And I thought that men don't talk to men that you don't know. Cause I just, I just, that's who I equated. I thought women were safe and men were dangerous. Yeah. And, um, I ran out of that classroom screaming. It led to a parent teacher conference. They were like, what's going on at home. She's always scared. There was an, another moment where I like threw myself on top of a run of a vehicle that was on. I was, oh five years old. I was five or six years old and I was left with my mom's friend who was babysitting me. And she was, I was with her daughter who was a little bit older. We were in their house and she said to us, I'm going to go to the store. I said, okay, I'll, I'll get my jacket. And she said, no, I'm going to leave you here by yourselves. We were five and seven, I think. 
or four and six. I can't remember. This was the eighties though, Elisa. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, this is a different time. This is a different time. So no shame on this woman. Like she, this is what like was culturally normal, but I knew like only in my mind, I was like, there'll be a robbery. The house will catch on fire. I didn't trust the seven-year-old that she was going to do a good job of taking care of me. And so I, I ran screaming out. I threw myself onto her car. I said, please take me. I mean, I have a six-year-old, I have a five-year-old daughter and, a, and an eight-year-old boy. Yeah. I don't see them ever doing something like that. And I'm kind of heartbroken over it because I need for them to have that fear when they sense their safety is being violated. Who? No one cares about your freedom more than you. No one. No one cares more about your money than you. No one cares more about your freedom than you. No one cares more about your safety than you. You have to be your biggest advocate on all of these fronts and better we start teaching our kids this now. And I'm not about like fear mongering, but it's really about just when that adrenaline arrives. Okay. What is this trying to tell me? The, the adrenaline is trying to have a conversation with you. It's not trying to run you into the street. Now, I, I don't jump on cars anymore. <laughs> Instead, I do other things like an adult would. I go another direction. There is something about this idea that when you're starting to feel that fear, it is your body, your instincts telling you that you need to pay attention to something, right? So this is why I, you know, I think that it's so important for us to to look straight at the fear and say, okay, what is going on here? Because it helps you. It's there to help us progress. It's there to help. And again, I'm talking about some of the types of fears you were talking about where shame, shame is a huge one, especially for women. I mean, we hear that all the time. This like, well, what will people think? And when you just said, Furnish, when you just said, you made that comment about how as we are the ones that need to think about these things but there's a there's another way to think about that right which is no one else is is paying that close attention most people are paying attention to what's going on with them right so we're always like well what are they thinking what are they saying and at the end of the day there's something to me personally very freeing about the recognition that most people are sort of caught up in what they're doing, how they're sounding, what is happening to them, and they're not as focused necessarily on every move you're making. Right. So I think there is something when I, it took me years to get to that conclusion. And I do think there's something incredibly liberating about that. And when you just mentioned that we need to be we need to be paying attention to these things we need to be focused on ourselves for me i made that connection to that fear of okay what's everyone thinking of me to the recognition that most people aren't thinking that deeply about it no and you know as a kid you don't have agency but we're not kids anymore and that fear so we think that fear is going to just run us into danger because that's what we did when we were kids because we didn't know we didn't know. We didn't know about the world. We didn't know what our options were. We didn't have agency, but we are grownups now and we have some more control, I would like to think, over our lives than we did when we were in kindergarten. So this is about almost reacquainting yourself with this fear that we have been, maybe we had a bad experience with it when we were a kid. And then of course, culture and society told us it's junk. It's a junk emotion. Just just be happy, be confident, be fearless. Well, 
I am all those things and I'm afraid. And if they're not, they're not mutually exclusive. Okay. The reason that I have confidence is because I'm paying attention to my fears. Because at the end of the day, what your fears, I think the good ones are trying to tell you is what you care about, what you value, what's important to you. When a red flag shows up and you're the only one who sees it, that's personal to you. What does it mean? And it doesn't mean you have to abort the situation, but you're going to pay closer attention. Or maybe I really need to reflect and say and, and extrapolate from this red flag. I know this because so many times I have ignored the red flags and I have then months later been like, ah, you have no, if you think that you have no one but to blame, no one to blame but yourself if something goes bad because you saw this red flag early on, then that's a good sign that maybe you need to slow down, change directions, take a pause. Yeah. I, I love that. I mean, it, there's so much in there. And again, themes that we cover often on the show. But another thing that I just want to highlight about that is the need then to make, take time to reflect. So yes, you see a red flag. Why? What's going on? What's what's happening with that? And that self-awareness, I think, is so important that we take the time to reflect on it and really understand what's going on there. You might, as you said, discard it as like, okay, but you've now actually taken the time to think about it and reflect on what is going on. Why are you uh, concerned? And and I think that is, um, you know, one of the things we hear the most about is that this need for, for self-awareness and reflection. All right, well, Farnoosh, I am so grateful that you've spent this time with us today. If people want to keep up to date on all of that and what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do it? Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I wish I had all the time to, to get into all of these topics. You can follow my work on the podcast. It's called So Money with Farnoosh Tarabi. It's three days a week. I answer your questions on Friday. So if there's anything you want to um, get my two cents on, you can direct message me on Instagram. You can email me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. I leave the door open. And also all of my work on CNET, we are doing um, some really important work on things like the cost of living and the economy, as well as I have a weekly column where it's really just like what's on my mind. I've written about, you know, really strong opinions about things like the racial wealth gap, quiet quitting, and, you know, all of the stuff that's culturally relevant that is in the zeitgeist that I want to just give some two cents on and, and maybe offer a different take. Thank you. We really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Aliza. Thank you for listening to our show. And if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is just to leave us a five-star rating wherever you listen to the show. You don't have to write a review. You can just leave us one of those five-star ratings. And that is really the best way to support the show so we can bring you more great content. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you're an influencer or a brand that wants to work with us, please feel free to email us at info at Until next time.